The Diecast Movie Podcast proudly presents James Whale Retrospective Series, where we will be discussing the life, work, and legacy of director James Whale, with guest appearances from filmmakers, film historians, and other podcasters. We would like to give a special thank you to Reber Clark for the intro music. Please enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And we're continuing our James Whale retrospective, where we're talking about the man, the work, and his legacy. And we're still continuing on the work with yet another movie, The Great Garrick. And I'm joined with Troy Howarth. Howard. 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 <laughs> I knew I was going to do that. Howard. And um, he was a film historian, an actor, writer. And he's joining us to go over this wonderful movie that I saw for the first time the day before recording this. How are you doing today, Troy? I'm good. I'd hate for anybody to really think I'm an actor, though. I've done a little bit of a little cameo work for Josh Kennedy, who is a mutual friend of ours. But I'm no Thespian. I'm no David Garrick. Let's put it that way. Well, not not many people are. I guess you could put it. You know, it's uh, <laughs> and and I've. I know it's like, I mean, you could technically call me an actor because I've been in a couple, like a student project, and I've been in Runaway Bride, uncredited, which, you know what the words means? I was an extra, you know. <laughs> but it is fun. It is fun to dabble and, and see yourself on film every so often. <laughs> it can be. It can be. Um, I've never been comfortable looking at myself, so <laughs> that doesn't help me too much. <laughs> um, just to give people an idea, what – Stuff have you written about that, that would you think people on a movie podcast would be interested in um, finding out? Because you've written several books about movies or, or directors. Yeah, I tend to focus largely on what is known as European cult cinema. Um, people like Mario Bava, Dario Argento, Lucio Fulci, uh, the Spanish horror king Paul Nasci. I've written books about all of them. I'm currently working on a book on another Italian director named Roberto Lenzi. Um, I've written also about that book about John Carpenter. And um, I was involved for a period of time with what was intended to be a kind of a encyclopedia series of books about the horror genre decade by decade, by decade called the Tome of Terror. Um, that unfortunately is now dead and buried unless I decide to do something with it in the future. But we did get through the 1930s. Uh, which, of course, meant that, um, you know, to some extent, I've written a little bit here and there about James Whale, uh, who is one of my great, great favorite filmmakers. So obviously very happy to be here and talk about him today. I'm glad to have you here. And as listeners, if you haven't been following, this, this, if this is your first episode, go back. We've done multiple whale movies. We're not doing all of his work, but we've done a lot of his non-horror work, including his horror work. And um, we also had James Curtis talk about um, – James Whale's life, and he wrote, he wrote the book on a biography on Mr. Whale. Uh, it's, it's amazing how somebody gets pigeonholed in the one genre, and that's what people think with James Whale. They think of Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and don't realize all the different things he's done, and which led to me to do this retrospective. 
Uh, I know listeners are used to hearing me say this over and over, but it's just, I, w- I never realized he did Showboat. I never realized he did The Great Garrick. I never realized he did The Man in the Iron Mask and Journey's End and all these other um, wonderful works that I've just been enjoying this journey through, um, going through his directorial career. I'm, I've really, it's, it's been eye-opening, and it's just been a pleasure to see these things. Yeah, well, I mean, he directed, I mean, for, for listeners who are into horror films in general, he directed two of Peter Cushing's earliest films. Man in the Iron Mask was Cushing's first film. And uh, another film called They Dare Not Love, um, which is one of the few Whale films I've not seen, although Whale did finish that one. He was fired from it um, by uh, by the studio. It was made for Columbia. They, they fired him from that film. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. We were talking a little bit before uh, we started recording, and... Um, one of the things that I remember from James Curtis's book on whale, which is the, you know, the book about whale, if you're interested in learning about him, that's, that's the uh, sort of touchstone piece that you need to read. Uh, the great book about him, uh, was that whale had concerns early on because he'd had, um, a great success with journey's end on stage. And then, you know, obviously started making films. And of course his first film as a director was, was a film of journey's end. Um, but he was also involved in things like uh, Hell's Angels, the uh, Howard Hughes film, <clears throat> where he directed the, the dialogue sequences, a lot of the dialogue sequences anyway, while Hughes focused on the uh, on the battle scenes, the aerial scenes and so forth, which was still pretty amazing. Um, and also directed a film called Waterloo Bridge. And all these films were kind of connected in one way or another with World War One. They weren't necessarily what you would call World War One films in the sense that they were, you know, battle movies, but they were connected with the war. And he had concerns about being typecast that way. So when Frankenstein came along, um, you know, famously, of course, Robert, Robert Flory was supposed to direct the film, but Whale was kind of the new, you know, um, uh, golden-haired child on the Universal lot. He had to pick of what he wanted to do, and he said, I want to do Frankenstein. So not realizing that doing Frankenstein, he would become typecast as a kind of horror director, although it's worth noting that until Dracula... Uh, came out at the beginning of 1931 and Frankenstein came out at the end of 1931, there was no such thing as a horror genre. I mean, there were horror films in retrospect that had been made all the way back, you know, to the very beginnings of the cinema in the 1890s and certainly great classic, you know, um, expressionist films like Waxworks and Nosferatu and so forth. But they were never called horror and horror really didn't become a term. I don't know that they even started using it with Dracula. I think it might have been after the double punch of Dracula plus Frankenstein that all of a sudden that became a thing. And so then he became known um, as a horror director and he tried to get away from that too. So there was always something that he was uh, sort of trying to escape from in some sort of funny way. Um, Ultimately, these days, yes, he is best known for his quartet of horror films, all of which are among the very best ever made, I think. Oh, definitely. And I think he set a template up for that's still used today by a lot of horror directors or genre directors in that, in that area. And, but as, as you said, and, and I've said earlier, it's, I'm just amazed when I see him do things like showboat, you know, it's this musical and, and the camera work that he's able to get from his cinematographers, you know, whether it's his vision, how they're able to bring it to life. He's always seemed to be married somehow with a great cinematographer for a lot of these films that we've been talking about, including this one in, in Ernest Holler, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing the work that he was able to do in his career. I mean, nominated for multiple Oscars, including winning for gone with the wind. 
But I mean, it's just, right. it's just um, how he's able to get or, or be paired. I don't know whether it's, it's fake kismet or whatever, but he's always for his best films. He's always seems to have a visionary cinematographer with a visionary director and you get classics. Well, yeah, I mean, Holler was, this is the only film that he shot for Whale, um, but apparently it was a happy experience. I mean, a lot of Whale films uh, had tumultuous kind of births. They were, they were actually, this this film was kind of the sea of sanity amid the, the insanity of the film that he did right before and the film he did right after, which were very unhappy films for him. Uh, the Road Back had been made before this, and then he did a film called Forge of Seven Seas at MGM afterwards, and they were both very unhappy. Um, but uh, this was the only film that he did with Howler. They must have gotten along well because the shoot went well. There were no problems. There were no difficulties. Um, you know, it, it wasn't a troubled shoot like a number of the other films. I mean, he had started off uh, working principally with Arthur Edison, uh, who did uh, most of Wales' early films, and uh, then gradually brought in John Meskel. John Meskel uh, had joined him on The Invisible Man. He did some uncredited work on The Invisible Man. And he did everything with him after that through the road back. Um, but unfortunately, he was an alcoholic uh, who was frequently drunk on set. Um, he had, I mean, he had to be propped up. He was so, he was just drinking throughout the day. And it, it obviously put him out at Universal, although he'd done great work there, not just for Whale. He also shot the Black Cat for Edgar G. Elmer, which is an extraordinary visual experience. Um, but he ended up in Poverty Row. I mean, that, that was, you know, his career was kind of ruined by that. Um, but on the road back, he was kind of replaced partway through by George Robinson, who's another very fine cinematographer. He did a lot of the great universal films of the 40s, like Son of Dracula. Um, you know, the best-looking films of, of the 40s he was pretty much responsible for. Um, he also worked uh, a few times with Carl Freund. He had, uh, Freund had worked on The Kiss Before the Mirror, and uh, they would work on Port of Seven Seas and uh, Green Hell, which was not a, a happy experience for anybody, I don't think. But, um, yeah, I mean, Whale was unusual, not to say unique, but he was unusual in that period of time in that he was a very visually oriented filmmaker. Um, he was very, very particular, very meticulous. I know that uh, Gloria Stewart talked, for example, about how uh, everything that you see in the frame was personally arranged by him. He was very, very fussy about all the little details. And because he was fussy about the details, he frequently went over budget. Uh, he frequently went over schedule. That did happen here, um, although it, it didn't really cause a lot of problems at the time. Um, going back and looking at James Curtis's book on whale, I, I see that the budget was set at $650,000. This is 1937 money, by the way, so inflate that however you will. Um, it was set to shoot for 36 days uh, from June the 14th till July the 29th of 1937. It did end up going over schedule by about three days, so not disastrously so, and the budget went up to 683000 So um, being meticulous, being very particular, fussy, whatever you want to call it, uh, has a price tag attached to it, and as long as he had sympathetic producers, who were willing to um, enable that and who were willing to give him the room that he needed in order to do the work that he was capable of doing, everything was good. Uh, but what happened, of course, as you know, is when the Lemleys sold Universal after Showboat, everything kind of went downhill for him. So this is his first and only film at Warner Brothers. And um, again, it was, a, it was a happy experience. I mean, it was unhappy ultimately because it, it lost money at the box yes. office. It apparently lost 
somewhere in the range of like 450 grand, uh, which is not a small amount of money in 1937. And uh, interestingly, uh, Warner's had initially wanted to use him for another picture. They had talked about using him again, and that was it. That was done. I mean, that's always been the case. I mean, money is is paramount in these things. So although the reviews were excellent, they actually had some of the best reviews he ever had on any of his films, um, audiences, for whatever reason, just didn't warm to the great Carrick, and it, it was a flop. So unfortunately, this was his only movie for Warner's. Yeah, the critics seem to really love it, as you said. And um, I know there was one critic in particular who, when the AFI came out, their top 100 films, he put this as one of the films that would be, that, that just missed the list in his mind for making the AFI. And so it is still recognized today as as a as a great film, but it's just, maybe it was ahead of its time. I don't know. It It, it just didn't hit the spark, but... To give people an idea what this movie's about, the actor David Garrick leaves England to come to France, and he's going to work with the um, the French theater. And somehow it gets interpreted he's going to teach the French how to act, you know. And so, so the, the French theater people are thinking, "Oh, he's here's this English actor that thinks he knows better than us. We'll show him." And they end up meeting at an inn, and the French troupe of actors rent out the inn and they're going to do play all the characters in the inn. And they're going to set this thing up to, to embarrass David Garrick, the great Garrick and Garrick realizes what's going on. And it's, so it's, it's, it's like a little meta, like they, they're trying to do this play to set him up. He realizes it's a play. So he's playing along with the play. Another character comes in played by Olivia de Holland, who is not involved with this at all because it is an inn. And so it's a romantic comedy with a lot of crazy little things going on, which leads to eventual ending. And I, I just thought it was, I thought it was very enjoyable. I mean, it had, it, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice romantic comedy. It's, it's not as, um, with some of the ones that have come out back in the day where everything was moving at a quick pace with the dialogue. It's a dialogue that lets you develop a little more. And I think that's because it's like, theater actors doing the dialogue and in in a sense playing that roles which which adds to the comedy so i think if you like theater stage you'll really like this movie because you'll get more of the references and more of the the things going out of it so i think maybe that that's why it didn't work with the audiences because it didn't have that rat tat tat of a lot of the farces of the time yeah, it's not a screwball comedy in the way that something like Remember Last Night was, although it wasn't it wasn't particularly successful either. That was one of Will's earlier films. That was a movie that um, he did right after Bride of Frankenstein, um, which is I think one of his best films. But you know, it's 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 kind of a divisive film. People even today they seem to either really like it or really dislike it because it has a very quirky sense of humor about it. Um, it's, it is, uh, it's based actually in some form of history. I mean, it's heavily, heavily fictionalized, but David Garrick was indeed a real person. He was a major, major star in, in Europe in the 1700s as a playwright, a director, and an actor. Um, he'd been born in 1717, died in 1779, and, uh, he was particularly well known for his Shakespearean interpretations. He played Richard III, Hamlet, King Lear, even as a young man doing something like King Lear. And he was known for not being um, always particularly fussy about sticking to the text. So 
he would change the endings. He would add in musical numbers. I mean, and, and people responded well to it. They were very, very uh, popular uh, hits with the public. I think that was probably what really appealed to Whale when this when this project came to him. Um, I'm assuming Mervyn Leroy. Um, well, I, was, I, I love his credit on the film. Personally supervised by Mervyn Leroy. Oh, my goodness. That's wonderful. Personally supervised. Um, he, I'm assuming he was the one who brought Whale onto this film. And Whale would have been aware of David Garrick being a, a real sort of creature of the theater. Um, he had worked in the theater both as, as, as an actor, a director, and a designer, of course. Um, you know, had worked with Charles Lawton in the theater. Um, uh, I think the play was called The Boy with Red Hair, where uh, Lawton plays the abusive father and Whale played the, the title character. Um, some people have even tried to draw some parallels between that and Frankenstein. You know, the boy of red hair being a kind of Frankenstein-esque kind of creature or whatever. Um, but uh, I think that aspect of the theater and the historical aspects of it appealed to Whale, and it would have been one of the things that made him want to do the film. Again, it's very, very heavily fictionalized. I mean, what we see in the film didn't happen. That, that particular story didn't happen. It's actually adapted by a Hungarian playwright named Ernest Vida uh, from a play he'd written called Ladies and Gentlemen. Uh, and Garrick, I mean... I, most people probably, unless you're really interested in the theater and so forth, you're not going to be particularly aware of, of Garrick. But he left a very, very large footprint behind. Um, he has a couple of theaters have been named after him in England, for example. There's one that's still standing in the West End, uh, still active into the 21st century. There was one prior to it that had only, only been open for about 50 years uh, back in the 19th century. Um, and there were other films that dealt with him. Um, Cedric, Sir Cedric Hardwick, of course, who you know many of your listeners will know for his forays into universal horror films in the 40s. He's uh, uh, Ludwig Frankenstein and Ghost of Frankenstein, for example. He was the bad guy in The Invisible Man Returns and The Invisible Agent. Um, he had played uh, Garrick uh, in a film, a British film, back two years before this, 1935, a movie called Peg of Old Drury, which I've never seen. But I do like Sir Cedric Hardwick, so I'm interested to see how he did with the part. And there had even been a silent film back in 1916 just called David Garrick. So, you know, um, it was it was uh, a subject matter that would have appealed to Whale that I'm sure there was thought that it had commercial potential. I mean, obviously they didn't make it thinking it was going to be a flop. But it was, again, it was sort of the damnedest thing. It was so well received. The previews were really good. James Curtis writes about this in the book, that they, they had previews. Um, it was very well received. Um, the, the head of the studio was very impressed with the film, insisted on very little in the way of uh, fiddling around. He did uh, make Whale go back and do a couple of days of reshoots, some glamour shots of Olivia de Havilland. I suspect the last scene, the last shot in the film may have been one of those shots. This is a very glamorous close-up of her that ends the film. Um, but, I mean, by and large, everybody was happy with what he had done. The shoot had run very well. Again, it went over budget, but that's not, that's not unheard of. And yet audiences just stayed away in droves. And it's very difficult to say why. But as you say, maybe there was just a general feeling of who is this guy? We don't, why should we care about um, some, you know, British actor from back in the 1700s? And uh, maybe, you know, it wasn't advertised particularly well. I don't know. But mm, it's a pity because uh, it was well received critically, but financially it was a, again, it was just a big dud. And that happens. And um, for listeners that have not seen this film, it is readily available in Warner Archives. Um, when they, they, they print it on demand type thing, and it's on um, one of the DVD-Rs. 
And one thing I experienced when watching this, I had it in one DVD player, and I got about a little more than an hour in. It stopped playing, and then I switched to a Blu-ray player and was able to finish it. So if you do get something from Warner Archives and it's not working in one device, try it in another one because sometimes it's just that particular player you're using and it's not working. But it's not available streaming or any of that stuff. you got to go old school like I like to do and get the physical media so that way you always have it wherever you go. Yeah, it's one of the, unfortunately, one of the relatively few um, non-horror James Well films that has gotten a release. I mean, fortunately, lately, over the last couple of years, we've seen Blu-ray releases of The Kiss Before the Mirror and Showboat, for example. Um, Waterloo Bridge got a release back in the day as a part of a Forbidden Hollywood set, you know, pre-code movies in the early 30s. Um, but most of the films are not available, and I don't really understand why that is it always seemed to me universal missed a big trick back in 98 um when gods and monsters came out they could have done a box set um you know i guess the question becomes is his name big enough to attract that kind of attention but then it seems to me you know companies put out a box set of frank borzaghi films no disrespect to Frank Borzaghi, but who knows who he is compared to James Well. I mean, Well has made some of the most iconic films of the 1930s, so I don't know why it is, especially with one studio controlling a great many of his films, because he worked for them pretty much exclusively from 31 to 36, or 37, really, um, you know, and did a couple of other later films besides. I, I don't know why it is, but most of the films just have not been given a decent release, and I think that's a terrible shame. Oh, I agree with you. And I, I can, I mean, they keep putting out universal keeps putting out edition after edition of Frankenstein, bride of Frankenstein, the invisible man. And they do them over and over and over. At least if you're going to do that, as you said, they could include the other whale movies, restore them and then make it one complete collection. And um, and that way people that are going to say, Oh, I like Frankenstein bride. And that maybe haven't purchased it yet, which I can't imagine, but they, they might be that way and say, let's get these other ones too and get the complete work. And then they can do what we, we've kind of been doing this retrospective and then see, I love it when you can see how a filmmaker or an actor, whatever type of creative person is develops over time. And you can see certain mm -hmm. things, how they improve or certain things that they like, certain tropes they like to use over and over certain gimmicks that are, that are really in their wheelhouse. And it, it's been, it's been a, a great journey. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Wales' progression, if you if you watch um, Journey's End, which, of course, as you know, is only available now in a very rough-looking version, um, but that's okay with that film because it's a very staging movie. It's very much a point-and-shoot movie. You can tell it's somebody who hasn't made a film before, he's not comfortable with the medium yet, he's working with a piece of material that he's done on the stage, he knows backwards and frontwards. So it gets by in the sincerity of its performances and the sincerity of the material but it's not a great stylistic movie. Then you watch as he progresses and he's becoming more and more adventurous and more and more creative with cutting and with uh, camera movements and so forth. I mean, this film uh, obviously had some money behind it. Uh, it. It's quite clear when you watch it, it has uh, quite a number of extras are involved. Uh, there's a, a marvelous uh, art direction and sets by Anton Grote, who is the designer who did the great Michael Curtiz uh, horror films at Warner Brothers, um, uh, The Walking Dead, 
uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum and Dr. X. He did those fantastic expressionist sets. So this film has great sets, has great costumes, has a nice cast, a lot of very familiar faces. It's obviously something that they spent money on. And it was something that he had up until that time. It was after this, um, he went to MGM, did a film called Port of Seven Seas, which is one of the very few whale films I've not seen. Um, it is floating around out there, and I am going to pick up a copy one of these days, but that was a very unhappy experience for him. Uh, then after that, he goes back to Universal and he makes B-movies. I mean, real cheap little films that uh, he was obliged to do because he had contractual obligations. And the new management there didn't like him. I'm sure it was mutual. And uh, he found himself working with gradually more and more diminishing resources and so forth. So you don't get to see a progression like you get to see. Well, if you think of somebody like a Scorsese who's working now, for example, who's gone from making very micro-budgeted movies to making these massive, hugely budgeted movies he's making now, um, you can see where he's you know constantly evolving and constantly using new technology and so forth. Whale kind of got there all the way until around this time 1937 and then after that it starts to go downhill so this is an important film i know james curtis uh, has has said he thinks this was Wells' last great film um i don't know that i would put it quite on the top tier i don't think it's quite up there with the best of his work but it is arguably it's the last really um, beautifully realized film that he would do because after that it did get a little bit more i mean man with the iron mask is a nice film and all but I don't know that his heart was fully in that one. I, I think that was more of a kind of a survival project. It, it's got some money behind it, but I don't really think that was something he was particularly interested in doing. Whereas I do think he was very interested in doing this. Oh, I agree. And um, from talking with, with Mr. Curtis, with um, how things went progressed, progressed progression-wise, I think he did eventually lose interest because not as much of the, from his creativity as much as, putting up with all the crap that he had to put up with to get that vision out there. Eventually anybody that's ever worked at a job, if you're getting a lot of um, BS from your work and other stuff, it, it gets to be where you don't want to be there anymore. And once you don't want to be there anymore, your, your productivity drops and eventually you just have to realize you have to switch to another venue. And then of course, in his case, he switched to um, painting and other stuff. And then he did, go back and do a little bit with plays and, and things like that. But for the most part, he, he just enjoyed his retirement and just went to other forms of creativity besides the film. And, and, and that's fine, you know, because people are like, oh, I wish he would have continued on this and that. If your heart's no longer in it, it, it it'll show in the work. And, I, I'm, you know, and that's part of the reason why we're not – one, there's two reasons why we're not covering every film that he's done. And one is they're hard to find, as you said some of it you, you just can't find at all uh, unless you go with the, the bootleg market if you're lucky. Um, two, his heart's not in it anymore. And I, and, and you can, and I, won't, I don't want to think, like when you talk to a creator, why would you want to go over stuff that they're not really probably as proud of? And going back to Mr. Curtis's book when he had two lists of movies in the very first chapter, one of the first chapters, he's showing the guy a list of one set of movies and a list of another set of movies. And um, the guy says, which one you like? And, and of course, the one that had Frankenstein and all these other ones. And the other list, he goes, yeah, this is the one that have all the problems with the suits, basically, telling me what to do. And there are problematic shoots. And I think yeah. he, right then and there, it shows you he was just not really happy with that work. So, I mean, which doesn't mean there might not be things that a viewer might not like. It's just he himself was not happy with it. 
you know, he, he was, it was a sad thing. And I think, um, I think there was a lot of arrogance in the man. I mean, let's be honest. I think there was, there was definitely an ego there uh, that manifested itself. He could be quite cruel at times. Um, he, he was not particularly nice to Boris Karloff after a certain point. Um, you know, and I think he was accustomed to having a certain degree of control. When he worked at Universal and the Lemleys were in control, Junior Lemley was his safety net. Junior, Le- Junior Lemley was the guy who basically said, here's a blank check. Go do what you want to do. I know you'll deliver. And that was the atmosphere in which he was able to make something like Bride of Frankenstein. Bride of Frankenstein would have been unthinkable um, under the new regime. Certainly by the time they came back and did I mean, Son of Frankenstein's a wonderful film, and I love it dearly. And it's still a film with some scope and ambition. It's got some money behind it. It's got a big cast, immense sets, and so forth. But then as you get into the 40s, you're getting into the B-movies, which, I again, I'm very fond of. I love The Ghost of Frankenstein. I think it's a ton of fun. I could probably watch that movie once a year for the rest of my life and never get tired of it. Um, I can't picture him making a film like that because that's just not the kind of thing he was interested in. Um, he was, the, the Universal wanted him to do Dracula's Daughter, which always makes me laugh, the very idea of him doing it. Apparently, at one point, he was semi into the idea. Um, but I think his way of getting himself out of it was to make that so completely kinky and outrageous that there was no way they were going to make it. Because he was concerned that if he ended up doing that, he wouldn't be able to make um, things like, you know, uh, Remember Last Night. And he was eyeing up Showboat. He was really keen about getting Showboat made. He didn't want to get tied down to a little B-horror film. So he just made that so completely ridiculously outrageous. There was no way it was going to get made. And um, so somebody else comes in. Lambert Hilliard makes a film. It's a very fine film. I enjoy it very much. It's a different type of sensibility versus what Whale was doing. And Whale was always doing something that was very sort of personal, very quirky, idiosyncratic and always sort of pushing the envelope stylistically, but also in terms of the content. Um, it's amazing some of the things that he got away with. I mean, he was very fortunate doing something like The Old Dark House, for example, pre-Cope. And you go back and look at The Old Dark House, and like, there's some, there's some kinky stuff in this film. There's some weird things in this film. Um, you know, whereas when Edgar G. Omer did The Black Cat, and as, as strange as the movie still is, it could have been even stranger because... It was originally supposed to be that much more unhinged, but they were like, no, 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 we can't do this. We've got to no, change it. They did reshoots and everything. Um, so he had this great freedom at Universal where Lemley pretty much let him do whatever he wanted to do. Had Lemley still been in charge when he did The Road Back, the movie that he wanted to make would have come out, I'm sure. As we know, unfortunately, that ended up being heavily compromised and for, you know, uh, there, there is, there has been a restoration of the director's cut, or at least close to the director's cut, um, by the Library of Congress back five years ago, I believe it was. Um, it has not been released on video, which is a crying shame. I hope somebody will put it out because the version that that was released in the theaters is is heavily compromised. And a movie like that, which I think he thought was going to be his Oscar movie, I think he thought he was going to it was going to be another All Quiet on the Western Front because, of course, it's a sequel to All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, I think he thought that was going to be his his Academy Award film. And maybe it would have been, but for a variety of reasons, it didn't happen. And I think after that, gradually, that that interest started to diminish. It's still there um, when he did uh, The Great Garrick, but it's it's not going to be for much longer because, unfortunately, after that, the films start to become less inspired. Um, they're still okay on a certain level. 
But when you get to something like Green Hell, for example, Green Hell is a terrible film. I mean, it's got, it has every reason in the world to be a good film. It's directed by James Well, it's photographed by Carl Freund, it's got Vincent Price and George Sanders and Douglas Fairbanks and Joe Bennett. All this talent, and it's laughable. And I remember seeing it for the first time and thinking, maybe he's trolling the audience. Maybe it's meant to be funny. But then I read James Curtis's book, and I read his reactions to people laughing at the film, and no, it was not meant to be funny. So, you know, what can you say about that? It's just after a certain point, it's like the attention to detail went away, the passion went away, uh, some of the technical skill was still there, of course, that had atrophy, but it's just not the same anymore. So unfortunately, um, it was kind of a, a, a period of time of six, seven years where he was extraordinary. And then after that, not so much. Oh yeah. I, and they had that creative, it's, it's, sometimes you have those creative types that burn like comets, you know, and, and he was that yeah. kind of way where for almost a decade, six, seven years, I mean, you know, so it's, it's, it's you know, it's close to a decade. He was he was churning out stuff that was just really good, to excellent, you know, quality. And um, but sadly, what happens with a lot of people for a variety of reasons we already mentioned that that that, that flame burns out and the spark is gone. And sometimes, like with Man with an Iron Mask, it rekindles for a little bit, but it's not always going to stay there. Now, the interesting thing with the Great Garrick, not only was it funny and enjoyable and lighthearted, but it also has a, a very good cast. I mean, it's, a, you know, the, you, you could tell where the money went, not just with sets and production, but they, they got an awesome cast in it. And um, like we already mentioned, Olivia de Havilland playing, um, uh, was it Jermaine? I think. Yeah, Jermaine. And I've always loved her work. I mean, Adventures... Um, you, you know, The Adventures of Robin Hood, to me, is the best Robin Hood movie that I've ever seen still. Oh, you know, sure. The one that she sure. was in. But, I mean, mm-hmm. she was, won Oscars for, um, an Oscar for each his own. She was nominated for Gone with the Wind. I mean, you're talking about somebody who has a huge credit list and usually put out excellent work all the time. And she lived an extremely long life, dying in 2020 at the age of 104. And you'd see pictures right. of her, and she still looked lovely and was, was keen mm-hmm. all the way through. And it's just an amazingly um, long life and, and an interesting life. I mean, it's almost like we can do a whole episode just on her and not even touch, sure. scratch the surface on the stuff she did. But I, I really enjoyed it because she, she plays the character that's not an actor in the movie and how all this stuff happens around her. I can just imagine, you know, she showed the bewilderment. She showed the, um, the sadness when she got lectured by the great Garrick and everything else. And as you said, they did the money shot at the end with her. And um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it's just amazing with her. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, she's, um, She's second build, you know, she's the female lead, but it takes a while for her to show up. It's almost you're watching and thinking, isn't Olivia de Havilland in this somewhere? So her screen time isn't huge, but she plays the most sympathetic character in the film. She's the only one who's completely without any kind of guile. She's the only one who is, you know, basically what she, you know, what she appears to be. She's not putting on a show or whatever. 
Um, you know, and she's very sympathetic. I mean, I don't think she was ever asked about Jane's will, which is a shame, um, unless there's a quote from Curtis that I'm forgetting in his book, but I don't think there is. Um, I don't know if she ever commented on him and what she thought. I mean, again, it, it was apparently a happy and smooth shoot. So I, as far as I know, he got along with everybody. I've heard any, you know, it's not like when he worked with Wallace Beery on Four to Seven Seas, for example. That was not a happy time. Um, but uh, no, I mean, she had, she was not quite at the beginning of her career, but she was she was on the cusp of superstardom by this time. She'd done a Midsummer's Night's Dream. She'd done Captain Blood, of course, the first of her Errol Flynn pictures, Anthony Adverse with Frederick Marsh, and again with Errol Flynn in charge of Life Brigade. So she's on her way to becoming a big star. Um, she would become a bigger star after this. I mean, the following year is when they did uh, Robin Hood and, uh, of course, all the wonderful stuff that she did through the decades after. I mean, I, I think probably the best performance I ever saw her give was in The Heiress. For William Wyler, um, she and uh, Ralph Richardson and Montgomery Clift are all quite brilliant in that film. It's one of my favorite films of that period. Um, so, I mean, she does a lot with not really all that much, because when you break it down, she really only has a few scenes in the film, but they're good scenes and they're very well played. And crucially, too, I think she plays very well with Brian Ahern, who is wonderful as, as Garrick. Um, he treads that line of caricature very, very neatly. I mean, you could almost say that, you know, Garrick was kind of the John Barrymore of his time, minus the drinking and debauchery. So he's kind of, he's a PG level uh, John Barrymore. So we don't have to worry about him carrying on in the way that Barrymore did. Um, but they play very well together. And I, I think uh, they both really anchor the movie with very, very strong performances and very, and a kind of different key because Ahern is very much the, the actor, you know, he's, he's always putting on a show. Um, whereas again, to Haviland is very much, you know, in the moment, very sincere and very, again, very direct and, and what you see is what you get. So that makes them, I think, a very appealing couple. Yeah. The chemistry between the two of them is, is, is excellent. And Ahern carries the movie. I mean, is the great Garrick and he is in the predominant part of the movie. And the, uh, it's amazing because he plays off as a complex kind of character because like when he shows up at one end, not, not the end where all this, um, the actor's hijinks takes place, but it's, it's the first in in France. He stops by and, um, he asked the person, did anybody send me any letters? And, and, and his guy that's with him, um, Shelby says, why did you do this? Cause I know we expect any letters. No, I just wanted to know who I was. You know, it's like he has yes. that, that little bit of, um, ego that has to be, you know, fed, to keep himself going and stuff like that. But he also, you know, play when he, when he realizes what he did to Jermaine or Livy de Havilland's character in the movie, you can just see how he you know, feels so terrible. But of course, when he portrays it, he portrays it like an actor, you know, in the flowery mm -hmm. language and things like that. So it's, it, it, it's interesting. I think, like I said, if if you really enjoy theater, you're going to enjoy this movie because it's it's that flourishes that are in there that everybody gets to do. It's it's sort of a love letter to the uh, bygone age of the theater, and I think that's something again that Will would have felt very deeply because of his background in the theater. I mean, not to say that that theater has been um, eradicated by film, but in terms of popularity, obviously, film has has become the you know probably the more popular venue on the whole, although there are still obviously people who are very devoted to the theater, theater actors and, and so forth, as well as people who like to attend the theater. 
Um, but I think that aspect of really kind of exploring the, uh, the, the ins and outs of the theater and also the ego of the actor is something that really appealed to him. And that's, that's something that goes throughout, but it's not just the ego of the, um, of the actor to get steward in the Lionel Atwell character. Uh, we get the, the ego of the playwright, um, you know, the very arrogant uh, character that he plays, which in a way kind of anticipates, although again, he's not playing an actor here, but it anticipates the ham actor that he plays in uh, To Be or Not To Be uh, for uh, Prince Lubitsch just a few years later, which I guess was kind of his last sort of big, um, you know, mainstream popular success because that unfortunately was the same time frame where he had his, his scandal, which derailed his career, although he kept working. He was working in only in low-budget genre films from that time on. So, um, but he's uh, he's marvelous and he's not in as much as I would have liked, of course, but this is actually his third and final film for Whale. He had already been in One More River uh, back in 34 and then earlier in, in March of 37 when he uh, started shooting um, the road back. Um, he was in that as well. So, uh, Lionel Atwell obviously is one of my great, great favorite actors. I always enjoy seeing him and, uh, seeing him in this as this, again, this sort of insufferable pompous character is, is a lot of fun. And, and he's the one who actually, in a sense, misunderstands what was said in England and then takes that mm -hmm. back with him to France and leads this whole hullabaloo to happen, uh, because, mm -hmm. Um, David Garrick does this this big speech saying he's going to France, and it's the audience that says, "Teach him how to act. Teach him how to act." It's never him, but he takes it and says it's the other way around, which which leads to all this one that one group wanting to do the comeuppance of this, you know, actor. You know, oh, how dare they? You know, and that kind of thing. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's a very important character. I again, I wish I wish he would have had more face time, but you know. It's always a pleasure to see him. There are other actors as well, um, you know, who are very familiar from whale films in particular. You get an unveiled appearance by E.E. E. Clyde, uh, who had been in The Invisible Man. You know, here, what's all this? You know, he's, he's the, uh, the pompous burgermaster in Bride of Frankenstein. He's in One More River. He's in Remember Last Night, Showboat, The Road Back. Uh, this is actually his last movie for whale. So he must have been one of his great favorites because Everybody always talks about Una O'Connor, for example, and she only did two films for him. Mm -hmm. You know, E.E. E. Clive was in considerably more. Um, of course, you know, unfortunately, he, he passed away not that long after that. So uh, he did not have a lengthy career, but he did manage to fit in a good amount of, of work for Whale. And it's always a pleasure to see him as well. Just a small part. Um, but he has lines and everything, so it's, it's a shame he's not billed in it. Yeah, I think that a lot of people are that watch modern movies now see everybody credited for virtually everything, even catering. And back in the day, only the, even people of speaking roles were not always credited, you know, and it was, it's, it's just a different thing when you watch a movie in the past and you see the credits, the credits literally only take two minutes, three minutes at the most, you know, for to go through and, and that's it. You know, you're Sometimes less than a minute. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, you know, it's always a wonderful, the uh, universal, you know, good cast is worth repeating and you get maybe eight to 10 names, you know, even though there's like 30 or 40 people in it. But there's a lot of people in the crowd scenes and so forth um, that I could not identify, although I gather, for example, Elspeth Dudgeon was among them. Uh, Elspeth Dudgeon had played, uh, under the name of John Dudgeon, had played uh, Sir Roderick in The Old Dark House and she also played the old gypsy woman 
uh, complaining about the lack of pepper and salt in Bride of Frankenstein. Um, so she was another person that, that we all knew and, and liked to put into his films. I did spot Michael Mark, uh, who played uh, Little Maria's father in Frankenstein, very familiar face in a lot of Universal movies. So uh, a lot of familiar faces in there. One of my favorite performances in the film is an actor named Etienne Giraudot. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He plays the actor turned prompter, um, who is uh, very much on Garrick's side. And uh, he's another one who had worked with Will before he'd been in the road back, and he would go on to do four to seven seas. And he gives a lovely little performance. I mean, I, I really think he steals every scene that he's in. Well, the prompter, definitely. I mean, I mean it's a comedy. But he's even the more comedic, and he and he never can go right to straight. He he never gives a quick, mm-hmm. succinct description of something. He goes in these long stories to get to the point, and uh, you know, which which sometimes people have the patience to hear the whole thing, and other times they're just like, ah, let's go, let's go quick. But he is um a big Garrick supporter in in this French theater, and um, yeah which leads to a lot of the things going on and, and, and the happy ending that happens and that kind of stuff. But so he, so he plays a pivotal part, but you're right. Every scene he's in, he, he, he steals it. Everybody, you're just drawn to him. He's quirky looking. He plays the quirky character so well. And uh, I don't know. I just enjoyed him. I just enjoyed him a lot. Yeah, I did too. I, I had, I hadn't seen the film for uh, a number of years when I, agreed to do this so of course went back and looked at it again and realized how wonderful he was i completely forgot because of course i always remember lionel Wadwell and, and uh, de Havilland and Hearn. but um yeah etienne Gerardo, i think is is really particularly wonderful louis alberini is another one who's great in it too he plays the nutty actor luigi um he'd been in by candlelight which is a really really good um whale kind of romantic comedy i, I like it even better than this one uh, with paul lucas um Another one I hope somebody will put out on video one of these days, but uh, uh, he's a lot of fun. He he has the most broad comedy in the film because he's the one, he wants to go crazy. All actors want to have a scene where they go crazy and he's running around with a knife and everything. This is very broad. Um, Will, Will definitely had a taste for broad humor and sometimes, I, I don't know, it may be heresy depending on your point of view. I, I think he rather overindulged Uno O'Connor in Bride of Frankenstein. I, I think a little less Uno would have gone a long way for me personally. She's more tolerable in The Invisible Man because she's not given as much leeway, whereas all the shrieking and everything in Bride of Frankenstein, eh, you know, could have toned that down a little bit. But uh, the, the stuff with Alberini in this works, I think, and it's just it's great because, again, you're seeing this sort of actorly ego thing going on. Um, the actor who has the opportunity is always being cast in the dull part. You know, as he complains at one point, oh, you're always putting me in, you're casting me as the waiter, or you're cast doing dull things. I want to have a scene where I go crazy. And he's finally allowed to do it, and it, it's like he doesn't know when to stop. <laughs> he just is completely nuts for real, and they can't tell if he's really going to hurt somebody. So he's a lot of fun, too. Oh, that scene where he's coming down the stairs with the knife and all the stuff going on, I mean, it's just, you can just tell it's an actor just living Maybe maybe early method acting. You never know what, it's, what they're trying to portray it as. Like, did he really go crazy? I'm supposed to be crazy, you know, that kind of thing. Now, no, it's great. I, I thought it was interesting when having watched Waterloo Bridge and we saw an actor, mm-hmm. Betty Davis, get one of her first early roles, and you see her in a small part. Mm-hmm. And here we have another actor, Lana Turner, who's getting her 
an early role, a bit part. She had, you know, she's in there for several scenes, but I mean, she's playing one of the um, maids, you know, an actor, play, yeah. an actor playing the maid. And, uh, but, yeah. it's, but it's kind of cool to see these people when you go back and you look at these things, get these early roles and, um, and, and you know, they had these long distinguished careers afterwards. Yeah, it was her third. Um, as, as far as I can tell, she had done a movie called They Won't Forget, and uh, she had an un- uncredited part in Topper. They were both shot around the same time in early 1937, around March of 37. So this would have been her third film, uh, I guess only her second with Billing. Um, she's barely in it. And, and if I hadn't seen her, as a matter of fact, when I watched the first time around, I was like, where was she at? So I had to go back and find her. Looks very different, of course. She has dark hair in the film as opposed to later, of course, just for her blonde hair, you know, and uh, Postman always rings twice and films like that. So she became a major star. Um, another actor who is making his first appearance, too, is Albert Decker, uh, who's billed as Albert Van Decker. And he is probably best known among horror buffs for playing Dr. X. Um, he is, uh, he's playing one of the actors in this film. And, uh, he would go on to do Wales, the old, the man in the iron mask. He played Louis the 13th in that. So within a few years, his career was up and running. Another guy like Lionel Atwell, who unfortunately had kind of a tragic uh, life. There were some scandals there and he, he died rather mysteriously right after doing the, the wild bunch, great Sam Peckinpah Western. Um, but a wonderful actor. I mean, he was in some great film noirs like, um, uh, the Killers, the great uh, Robert Schaubach movie with uh, Burt Lancaster, and uh, just a, a wonderful, wonderful actor. And again, kind of an eccentric man in real life, apparently. But um, this was, I believe, his first feature. Although he'd done a couple of short subjects prior to that. But yeah, so you have an opportunity here to see a couple of actors who are just kind of at the start. I mean, even De Havilland's not that far from the beginning here. I mean, she's already made an impression that she's she's got a name. She's warranted having her name star on the poster. Um, but, you know, you've got people who are kind of at the start and others who are kind of towards the end. So it's a nice mix. And and that's what I think um, about Whale. He's able to get, whether it's him or the casting director or both, um, how he's able to find talent and, um, and, and put him in some interesting roles, even if it's small roles. I mean, it's the thing is you never, you never know what that small role will lead into with other work and those kind of things. And, and, and it reminds me yeah. of, um, was it May Clark? where they saw her in um, well, The Public Enemy get half the grapefruit in the face by James Cagney. And then, of course, next thing you know, she's in Waterloo Bridge, you know, so because people saw that one, they're like, oh. And she, she moves on into another film, which was which, which a much bigger role, you know, being the, the, the starring role. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned Betty Davis, and I guess she was originally Lemley's choice to play Elizabeth in Frankenstein, and Wales said, no, she doesn't have any sex appeal. So got May Clark instead. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, now Whale was very involved because, well, again, with his theater background and so forth, he really cared about actors and was very interested. A, a, a lot of films uh, during this period, this sort of studio period of, um, you know, when film, I mean, it was kind of like a factory. And I always thought if I had been born during that period of time, I probably would have gone in to make films because to go in and start off as a clapper boy and then work your way up the ladder. Um, would have suited my temperament so much better than to have to go out there and really sort of sell yourself and, and you know, have a portfolio and have a, a specific thing that you've got to pitch. I couldn't do that in a million years. 
Um, but it was like, it was a factory and each studio had its own. You could tell universal film versus a Paramount film versus an MGM film. The same actors showed up and, you know, the same technicians and they all had their kind of style and everything. And so very often it was, uh, it was a kind of in-house casting thing where they, they drew from the same pool, but well, definitely had his actors. I mentioned E.E. Clyde, for example. I mean, he worked at universal with him a lot, but then brought him over to Warner's to do this. Uh, there were clearly different actors that, that he liked working with. But Lionel Atwell, he had just worked with, you know, on, on a couple of pictures. So he would have specifically requested him for this. Um, yeah, I think he was very involved in the casting of this film. I don't think there was anybody who was really kind of imposed on him that he didn't want and, and one actor we haven't mentioned who plays um, Garrick's, like, right-hand man, so to speak, is his, uh, his helper, Tubby, um, Edward Everett Horton. And um, yes. we did It's a Mad, 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 Mad World episode, and he had a small part in there. So, I mean, of course, I think ever, just about everybody had a part in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. And, of course, you know, I always think of him um, for Arsenic and Old Lace, uh, Frank Capra film with Cary Grant. Uh, he, he was always a marvelous, uh, marvelous character actor. He specialized in playing kind of... A, I guess you could say he was always sort of coded to be gay characters that he played, the sort of fussy, um, sort of vaguely prissy characters that he tended to do over and over and over again. Uh, always, always a scene stealer, and he's great in this. I mean, he's got some great, uh, even even just in wider shots and so forth, he has a way of using his body language and using his, his uh, face in order to kind of steal the shots every now and again from the stars. So that's a sign of an experienced character actor for you. Um, and also, this character is one you never want to trust with a gun. He seems to be shooting it all the time, and never what he's never, never what he's tending to do with it. So it's uh, it's, uh, but yeah, no, he definitely true. steals some scenes, and he definitely adds the humor, you know, part. And the, the only thing I find weird with his character is he's in the know about what is going on because he's with Garrick, and Garrick tells him, but yet. Yeah. Sometimes he's playing like, I don't know what's going on. So I don't know what he, it's so meta where he's, when he's around other people, he's playing that he doesn't know what's going to happen, but there's times he's hiding and when he's by himself. Yeah. And, I, and so part of me, is, I, was, I was a little confused with his character, you know, because he, he would know it's all fake, but yet he's acting like it's real and there's nobody around. But I mean, it's a comedy, so I just let it go. You know, I just figured it's, they're going for the humor. Nah, I think. I think it could be too. He's just maybe he's just a little thick. <laughs> that could have something to think. But it is one of those things where the plot is ever shifting, and everybody is, you know, is, is it a play? Is it not a play? And, and it gets something that I think would also have appealed to Whale. You know, the whole sort of disguise aspect and the whole, uh, you know, kind of plot within a plot within a plot thing was was amusing to him, I'm sure. So, yeah, I mean, it kind of need a scorecard to keep track of what's real and what isn't and i think that's you know maybe he's a little bit of a stand-in for the audience on that level too on a certain level another guy i, I like in a lot is uh, melville cooper who is the uh, the head of the uh, i mean it's the french theater troupe but everybody speaks with an english accent so <laughs> <laughs> nobody's trying to put on the french accent which is deliberate and that's fine. I mean, I, I don't mind that. I'm not criticizing it, but uh, he and Olivia de Havilland would rejoin very shortly after this for a movie. You just mentioned uh, Robin Hood, where he played the, uh, he's the sheriff of Nottingham. Everybody thinks Basil Rathbone is the sheriff of Nottingham. No, Basil Rathbone is uh, Sir Guy of Gisborne. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. But because everybody thinks of Robin Hood's nemesis being the sheriff of Nottingham, no, it's 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 little Melville Cooper. He's <laughs> the sheriff of Nottingham. That is a rap on a guy. But yeah, I mean, he's another. He's been in Rebecca for for Hitchcock and uh, uh, tons and tons of movies. I mean, he's he's one of those wonderful, um, you know, all-purpose character actors who you could always depend on to to enliven any film that he shows up in. And he's a lot of fun playing Monsieur Picard. Uh, and again, the the head of the sort of French theatrical troupe. He, he, he definitely plays it with all of its relish because he plays the, the head of the theater troupe. Then, of course, when they're all acting as the, as the end people, he's the end keeper. So he's still the boss of the group. And, and I'm just, I'm, and I love it when Garrett figures out what's going on, you know, when he finally gets there, it's like that, that, the way, the realization hits his face and in, in, in that kind of stuff and how he's like, ah, I can see what's happening and, and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think the interesting thing with movies nowadays, I don't know if they would allow the lead character to realize it as quick. I think some movies now, if they were to use the same type of movie, they might have it play out more before he fi- or shows that he's figured it out. It might be one of those things where they might show it later that he knew all along or whatever, like in a flashback thing, like, you know, like, oh, he did this, did this spot and this spot and this spot. So it's kind of interesting when you watch it. It's like, how would they have done this as a modern direction if they had this now? And I'm thinking one of the things might be that the realization would not maybe occur as quick. Yeah, possibly, possibly. Although I think it works well enough the way that it is. I mean, it, it's fun to kind of, be on his side, so to speak, and be aware of the fact that he's in on it. Although, of course, crucially, um, he's he's not aware of a very important thing, and it, it very nearly cost him, you know, a, a potential for real romance. Uh, you know, we assume that they're going to be, you know, happily together ever after. Although you never know. But uh, you know, um, he's he's smart in most directions, but he doesn't realize the truth about the Olivia de Havilland character. He's he's so cynical, and he's so um, so sort of jaded everything is a performance for him. So uh, it doesn't matter whether it's making love or whether it's, you know, trying to outsmart somebody else or putting on a play, everything's about performing. And here's, he's dealing with somebody who is uh, very much, you know, real and, and uh, uh, who genuinely has feelings for him and he, he can't process that somehow. So um, he's in the dark on that at least, but yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting the way the plot plays out, and I do think the pacing is very good. Um, it moves along at a good clip, as I think most of Wales films do. I think he had a very good sense of timing and rhythm, and, and he knew when to kind of get out. I mean, the only times I would criticize him, again, it's just a personal thing, because I know some people absolutely adore every single frame of Bride of Frankenstein. I, I love the film, too. I think it's fantastic. I just wish he would have dialed back a little bit of the uh, Uno O'Connor streak. That's that's an example of him overindulging something for my taste anyway. Um, whereas in general, he was almost ruthless when it came to pacing, but just kind of keep things going. Uh, Frankenstein, I think, moves like a house on fire to this day. The old dark house, you know, really, it, it progresses very, very fast, especially compared to a lot of other films from this period, a lot of which may feel a little bit pokey by contemporary standards. I mean, sometimes there's a deliberate reason for that. The Mummy's a very slow movie, but it needs to be. It's, it's a mood piece that needs to have that kind of pacing to it. Whereas Dracula may have benefited from a little bit more oomph, you know. Uh, Will definitely always knew. And, and, it, and 
when I mentioned Dracula, it reminds me of one of the things that always interests me about whale in in terms of Frankenstein versus Dracula is the use of sound. Um, you know, people complain about the lack of music in Dracula. Although there is music in Dracula. We have music at the beginning. They go to the theater at one point. There's a, a tune on a music box. You know, there's a little bit of music here and there. But you feel the absence of music in that film, I think, in a way that you don't in Frankenstein because of the use of sound, the use of sound effects. The same thing in The Old Dark House, where the constant the wind and the shutters uh, battering against the, the house and the lightning and thunder and everything. It, it is its own sort of soundscape. It's kind of similar in a way to what Hitchcock did in The Birds, where he didn't have a conventional score. It's all these sort of bird calls and things that are on the soundtrack, which Bernard Herrmann was involved with. Uh, but it's not a, you know, it's not a score as such. Um, or even a more recent film like No Country for Old Men, where there's really, there's no music in the film at all. It's just, you know, it's, it's the use of sound, which I think, again, was something that he was very, very clever with, in addition to the use of the editing and the use of the general mise-en-scene, everything that's in front of the camera, all the props, the, the camera angles, the composition and everything. It's also the use of sound, which, uh, you know, this film actually does have uh, a score by uh, Adolf Dutch, who, um, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a good, appropriate score for the period, you know, this, this kind of period that the movie's set in, it, it evokes that period very nicely. Um, but the, the soundscape also allows room to breathe. And so it's not real heavily scored throughout. And one of the things I wanted to bring up with editing, and I've, I've mentioned this before, and how he is very unmerciful. As a film watcher, I'd always want to leave a film wanting more than having a film mm-hmm. overstay its welcome. And uh, I think something with films, particularly nowadays, but also films back in the day, you'd have a film, an editor or a director whatever it would be, it, it goes a little too long and you can feel like a scene goes, it's okay if one scene goes long, but when you have a several scenes going too long or other things that are in there that just kind of stop the movie. And I know some people are like, Oh, I want to see everything I can. I can understand it, but I, I don't want to see everything and have the ebb and the flow be interrupted. I want to get in there and enjoy the ride. It's like, it's like going over an amusement ride and having it stop for like, a minute and then I'll continue on. It, t- it changes the whole experience where if it had been a continuous ride and it's something whale has been, is very mindful of, as you said, keeping that ride moving to keep the thing flowing. And I think that's some people that always want more. Sometimes you want, you know, less is more. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Billy Wilder once said that, you know, making a film is like putting a bunch of pearls together on a, on a string. And sometimes the most beautiful pearl is too big and it unbalances it. So you have to get rid of it. Um, There are filmmakers who make big films, who make long films. And I think they can do it. I think they can pull it off. I think Sergio Leone was able to do it. I think Scorsese is able to do it. I can sit through three and a half hours of a Scorsese film because I am, fixed during that time. I, I accept it. Um, I've seen movies that are an hour and a half that feel like they're three hours though. So I, I don't, I don't have a kind of Roger Corman once said, and I don't agree with them at all. Although I think it was just him, you know, in his kind of producer mode saying a horror movie shouldn't run any longer than 90 minutes. I don't agree with that. I think the greatest horror movie ever made is Rosemary's baby. And that runs about two hours, and 15 minutes. That's long for a horror film, but I wouldn't change the frame of it. I wouldn't remove a second of it. Um, 
you know, Frankenstein only runs about 70 minutes. You know, it's quite a short film by contemporary standards, although that's pretty average for the time. Uh, the Old Dark House and the Invisible Man, yeah, they're, they're all about that. They run about 70 to 75 minutes. Um, it's about whether you're able to pull the audience into the atmosphere that you're creating. And atmosphere is very important, whether you're making a, a horror film or whether you're making a period set comedy like this. And he was a master of atmosphere. So he's able to pull you in. Um, he's, he's an, he's an oddly, he's an, it's kind of contradictory. He's very extravagant. He's very showy. You know, he will have the camera crane and boom and do all these wonderful things. And that great sequence in Showboat, the Old Man River sequence that everybody talks about because it's an extraordinary piece of filmmaking, you know, between Paul Robeson's just beautiful voice and these incredible camera movements that he's doing, you know, dollying around and craning and everything else. It's very indulgent, but at the same time, he's also very minimalist in certain areas. And he's very good, again, at keeping the pacing going and keeping things uh, pretty tightly focused. So I never feel from any of the whale films that I've seen. And again, I've, there's a couple that I haven't been able to see so far. But all the ones that I've seen, I wouldn't say that any of them felt like they were too long. Um, I might even say a couple of them felt maybe a little too short. But I've never felt that one oh, outstayed as well. And, and when I was meaning that point, it kind of goes with what you were saying is, a movie could go, being a three-hour movie, but if its ebb and flow is correct, you're never going to notice it. And that's the key thing. I think it's, it's the timing and the tension that the filmmaker is able to keep through the movie going all the way. And if they're able to walk that line, yes, you can go a longer movie and not have people notice it and be able to go right through. And you can have a 45-minute short and feel like it's gone forever. Because it's like, oh, really? It's only been twenty minutes, you know. It's it, you could tell when things are being padded for the sake of padding, and and that's oh, yeah. and that's you know sometimes films had to do that to make um, over an hour for its running time when it really was should have been like a forty-five minute. As long as they have right. like really forty-five minutes of work, and they're like, oh, let's get it to an hour and five minutes so we can make it a movie, right? And they throw all these clips in all the all the um, what did uh, what. Um, Stock footage. They'll throw stock footage things in just to make it oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. pad out. Well, yeah, and it, it's not to get too far off topic, but I mean, you know, back in the '60s uh, when Hammer was, was making their films, and they they had a, a an arrangement with 20th Century Fox in the U.S. and with um, Associated British in the U.K. where they would put out these double bills, and the films were supposed to run one or two minutes in either direction of 90 minutes. So it had, to, it had to be that long. And there's a film called The Reptile that I'm very fond of, but it's a good example of a movie that's 90 minutes that probably should have been 80 minutes. That, you know, there's a, there's a scene in the film where Michael Ripper makes cocoa. <laughs> it's like we see the whole process of him making cocoa. I'm like, why, why, why am I watching this? It's padding, and it does happen. And as much as I, and I like that film a lot, it is an example of something that, a little less there would have been that much better. Sometimes it really is a matter of minutes, but sometimes it's you know just being nitpicky too. I mean, you know, it's still basically a good movie. It's just yeah, you know, could have been maybe a little better if 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 they hadn't been beholden to getting it to that ninety minute time frame. So things like that can happen. Oh, I agree. And um, do you have anything else you want to talk about with the great Garrick? Um. 
I mean, again, I think, I think uh, more than anything, you know, just specific to James Will in general, I hope that somebody somewhere at some point will take it on themselves to put out, if not a box set, at least start putting out the other films, put out one more river, um, you know, get James Curtis involved in some of these films, let him do commentaries on these films because I do a ton of commentaries and I would happily do a commentary on a James Will film, but I'm not nearly as qualified as James Curtis is, for example. Get him involved, put out a nice, you know, put out the road back with both the theatrical version and the restored director's cut, or at least close enough to the director's cut. Get get it out there and let people see what was done to the film for so many years, how it was ruined, how it was trashed, and, and let people see that. Put out Remember Last Night and One More River and, and Journey's End and all these other films that have been missed. And, uh, you know, let's reestablish that Whale wasn't just a great director of horror films. He was a great director in general. Um, he did really good work in, in the war genre, in comedies, costume films, you know, a wide array of different things that he tried his hand at. Um, you know, again, the stuff that came after this, maybe not so much, although I, I, I'm rather fond of uh, Wives Under Suspicion, which is a sort of B-level remake of Kiss Before the Mirror, which in some respects I prefer because Kiss Before the Mirror is maybe a little a, a little overwrought. <laughs> it's, it's a little over the top, maybe, uh, whereas Wives Under Suspicion is a little more, um, you know, toned down. But you put them out and hopefully as as time goes on, people will realize what a really, truly great director he was and what an innovative director he was in this period of time in the thirties when he had a free hand and was able to do what he wanted to do the way he wanted to do it. Um, he made some extraordinary films and they deserve to be seen. I, I think that's the big thing. And um, I, I will, I will tell you this, not to, not to spoil this for you, but um, when I talked to James Curtis, he does not like doing commentaries. He, Really ah. does not like doing them. So, if you're if you're hoping that James Curtis is going to do a commentary, you, you you're 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 looking for the wrong direction. What he wants to do. <laughs> well, that's the one I can get him for an interview or something. Maybe I mean there's there are a lot of good people out there who do do commentary tracks, and I I'll, I'll throw my hat in the ring. Why not? I do a bunch of them. I might as well. But uh, there's certainly people who are very, very well qualified to talk. Greg Mank is another one who's done you know, great stuff uh, you know, with regards to the Universal films. And I know if they did One More River, for example, his book about Colin Clive has a lot of great stuff in there about the censorship problems and so forth. Um, yeah, get, you know, get, get these movies out and hopefully get some people who care about the films and who know what they're talking about involved and uh, hopefully get people to a place where they understand what made these films so special and so unique? And that's part of the reason why we're doing this retrospective. And um, just before we end the episode, um, where can people find your books or follow you, Troy? You know, where can people go? Uh, well, I'm on Facebook. Um, you know, uh, I I do have an Instagram. I don't know what my, I don't know what my Instagram <laughs> handle is. I'm terrible at this sort of thing. I'm not on Twitter. I am on Facebook. Um, I do I do tend to get choosy about who I accept, not because I think I'm so special, but just because I get a lot of weird requests. So, you know, um, but uh, in terms of buying the stuff or whatever, the books, commentaries, things like that, you can always go to Amazon. Um, you know, a lot of my books have been through Midnight Marquee Press. Uh, others have been through WK Books. 
and I recently did one about the movie called uh, Alice Sweet Alice, um, which is through Bear Manor. And I've got some more irons in the fire, as they say. So, you know, Amazon's a good kind of catch-all. You can find pretty much everything there. Excellent. And uh, I want to thank you for joining me to talk about the great Garrick and other things about with James Whale. Well, thank you for asking me. Like I told you before, he's uh, he's one of my favorites. He has been for many years, and I uh, any opportunity I have to talk about him and sing his praises, I'm only too happy to do so. And for listeners, again, you can find Troy's books by looking them up on Amazon. You know, do a simple web search and that kind of thing. You can you he's done movie commentaries and all the other stuff that we mentioned. So feel free to look him out. But as for this episode, we've reached our journey's end talking about the great Garrick and join us in our next episode. We're either be doing a movie decided by the roll of a die an interview, or we might, or we'll be continuing the James Whale retrospective series. So everybody stay safe out there and hope you have a good day. Thanks for listening. Bye. Hello everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode with the great Garrick. When I was joined by Troy, I really appreciated doing that episode with Troy, and Troy and I will be doing another episode later on in the James Well Retrospective series, The Road Back. Look forward to hearing that later on. Um, our next episode, I'm going to be interviewing Baltimore act character actor George Stover, who is also in the Alien Factor, which ties in with the episode I did with the Count Gore Duvall, Dick Dizel, which was a few episodes ago. And um. Let everybody remember that Kevin Slick, who's also on the show, who did Sunrise, a song of two humans with me, has a new album out, Coming Home, and I'm going to play the promo for that as we end the episode. And I hope everybody stays safe and look forward to talking to you guys later on. Enjoy. Hi, this is Kevin Slick, and you're listening to music from my album, Coming Home. If you like acoustic roots folk music, I think you might enjoy this new album.
The album is available on all the streaming platforms like Spotify and Tidal and other such ones. Uh, you can also download copies from Bandcamp or Apple Music and sources like that. And if you'd like to buy a physical copy, check out the store at kevinslick.com. Hope to see you sometime soon. 